Well, the um, picture behind me reminds you of what the theme is for the next uh, little while. We're looking at this business of the covenants of God. Or more importantly, the God who makes covenants. You may have guessed this, this sermon today is about Noah, although it's not about Noah really, is it? Uh, we did cut some words out, but did you notice how many words Noah says in those four chapters? Zero. We do not hear a single word from Noah. So it's kind of odd that we sometimes call it you know, the story of Noah, or even sometimes the covenant with Noah. Because Noah is anything but the main player. But if you look at some of the other stories of, of floods, and really all around the world, there are stories in just about every culture of a massive flood, which you can either say, well, that's because all these vastly different cultures that share almost nothing share a similar myth, a story, or the other possibility is that there is a recollection of a fairly unforgettable event. But when you read the Babylonian story, which we can now because it's been dug up, it's of Gilgamesh, um, it's a very different story. I think when, we, when it was first dug up, people were very excited. They look, 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 here's a parallel story. But now I think the way that scholars look at it, look at, look at the remarkable differences between it. And one of the differences is the character Noah, oh, he's not called Noah in the Babylonian story, he's a fully animated character. He's uh, quite a swashbuckling entrepreneur. He takes gold and silver and servants and friends and a few other things onto the ark. Uh, we have quite a bit of conversation between him and these dodgy gods who he's dealing with. But Noah, nothing. It's really a story about God. And there's things for you and for me to unlearn about God and to learn about God. Uh, and um, I remember praying with uh, these two scientist guys. One was in charge of the vet faculty at Sydney and the other ran a large laboratory at um, St Vincent's Hospital. And the guy from St Vincent's Hospital prayed this prayer. I've never been able to forget it. In fact, you may have heard it echoed in some of my prayers, I have no idea. But he prayed this prayer. We thanked God that he bothered to make and cared to keep promises. It was a really, it was a, that, that, that Tucson was very helpful. Our summary, as you can see behind me, is covenant, the God who keeps his promises. But before you keep your promises, you've got to make them. The God who bothers to make and cares to keep his promises. It is one of the distinctive things about the God who we meet in the Bible, that he makes promises. I have not done this reading, but a man from Great St. Helens Church in London did a lot of the research and read the appropriate sources and said, when you read through the stories of the Greek and Romans, Roman gods, there's not one clear example where they make a promise to anybody. There's lots of cases where humans make promises to God, and I think many of us have done that to God. Uh, we've made a promise to God. If you'll do this, I'll do that trying to sort of manipulate God to do what we want him to do. So we, and in the Roman and Greek uh, literature, there's lots of promises that humans make to God. In the Bible, as you'd almost expect if you know Jesus at all, it's in the complete reverse. The Bible is pretty uninterested in the promises we make to God, but it thinks that absolutely central is the covenant, which is the promise and the promises that God makes to us. The God who bothers to make promises and who cares to keep them. I don't know how you feel when someone doesn't keep a promise to you. Uh, we can sometimes sound like little kids at that point, but you said, 
and rightly, we're offended. I remember having an argument with a bank, um, some stuff that they hadn't done. And just when I was waiting for my appointment with the manager, there was a business review weekly, and on the front of it was these words, my word is my bond. Uh, and so I took that in with me. <laughs> I said, this is what we're on about, buddy. And he had a listener. It was a bit like playing chess with a chess guru watching from the other side. And then partway through, the guy who was listening said, uh, but, but look, Mr. Powell, it says here in the contract that you signed that signing this contract does not mean that we'll necessarily do what it says in the contract. I said, brilliant. You've you just put in writing your complete dishonesty. Right? But if I'm late with my repayments, you don't go, oh, that's OK, Ian. There's a little line in the clause saying that you signed that you'll pay back the money, doesn't matter. No, no, it was just this, they didn't think they had any responsibility, but my word is my bond. That is exactly what God could say to us. He keeps his promise. If that's true, if God is really like that, as the scriptures say from the first book to the end that he is, that is a treasure that you can know stuff about God, stuff about human destiny and future that you couldn't possibly know except that God bothers to make promises. So let's pray that we'll hear the good and uh, refreshing news. Father in heaven, thank you that you do bother to make promises to us that give us a steady certainty about what's going on even in the madness of uh, the life that we enjoy and endure. Uh, we pray now that we would hear the voice of your spirit. Help us to unlearn things that we believe that are false and to see and embrace those things about you and ourselves that are true. We pray this through Jesus our Saviour. Amen. Well, there's the second in our series on covenants. Uh, Andrew introduced us to the, the sort of implicit covenant that there is when God first creates everything, good and beautiful. There are, there are commands and promises and threats. A threat is a for, sort of a promise. And here we come to an extraordinary passage. It's the first time that the word covenant is used in the Bible. It goes on to be used over 270 times after that. But this, it's introduced to us here, so it'll be helpful for us to see what, what's in mind. Uh, it's the first time that odd phrase in the Bible, God remembered, is used. And it's also the first time we hear of an altar being built. So firstly, let's look at this, the God of covenant. Uh, I like the definition that's in the books that Andrew Vella put together for our groups. A covenant establishes a relationship that does not exist naturally. Right? So it, it establishes a relationship that isn't there naturally. Like a natural, it would be parent and child sort of thing. That's a natural relationship. But it brings into existence a relationship, normally from a king to a subject. It, the, the covenants are often entered into between a king that has won and a king that has lost, or a country that has won and a country that has lost, certain conditions and promises of what will be done and what will happen if the promises aren't kept. Or it re-establishes or rebuilds a relationship that is disintegrated and it enables a new day for an old and broken relationship. And what we hear in this conversation between God and Noah is in verse, let me see if we can find the, um, there's this description of the fact that you heard it, and you might have think, boy, he's grinding on about that, the, the corruption that there is in God's good earth. It's very important that we hold these two things together, that the earth is fundamentally good and beautiful, as are humans, fundamentally firstly good, beautiful, 
But then there's the word that you can see there is that the earth was corrupt. Something is corrupted when something that is good gets twisted and damaged and it becomes sort of poisonous at that point. And we hear that, that the earth is corrupt and it's full of violence. Read if you can, because you can find it easy enough on the net, the story of Gilgamesh. Do you know why the gods decided to flood in the Babylonian stories? Because the humans had bred so much and were making such a racket that the gods couldn't have a good sleep after they'd had lunch. So it was just like a cranky... Well, why was I going to say father? Like a cranky mother who's been... Like a cranky parent who's been working shift work, who just gets up and yells at the kids because they're being incommunicated. So they decide to drown the bunch of them. And then as you read the story, it becomes quite pathetic because then they're hungry because one of the differences, completely reverse in the Bible, is that humans are made in the Babylonian stories to feed the gods. Oh, dear, we've drowned the farmers and the servants. Now we're in trouble, idiots. Right? Whereas, of course, in the Bible, no, no, God feeds us. It's, it's, it's the complete reverse. But the reason why God decides to judge the earth is because it's violent and it's evil. And um, I suggest to you it would, be it would be more violent and more evil than our culture or even than our world. When Jesus says that the disciples of his are salt in the meat, he means it. And the world is a much more gentle place, thanks to Jesus, than it would have been. So many of our charities, even something like the UN, if you study the origins of it, was started by Christian men and women. The Red Cross, Christians. World Vision, Christians. The YMCA, Christians. The RSPCA, Christians. I'm happy if you, if you want to have an argument, that's fine. It's very clear where the histories will, will tell us. All sorts of good has come into our broken world through Christians. I would think that what's happening here is far more violent, even than our culture in, in our present day. And God comes to the point in one of the saddest statements in the Bible when he says, I regret that I've made them. It's so broken and so twisted that he says a flood will come. But then he says in verse 18, but I will establish, talking to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you. He doesn't ask Noah, would you like to enter a relationship with me? He says, I will establish my covenant with you. Noah is already walking with God. He's one of only two people in the Old Testament that it says they walked with God. Things of Abraham, it says that he walked before God. The only other one who said that he walked with God, which is the picture you're supposed to have in Genesis. Remember in Genesis 3, or Genesis 2, sorry, it said that God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the afternoon. That was how God had pictured human life. And it functions that way when you walk through life with him instead of ignoring him using his name as a swear word and the other things that our culture so wisely does. But Noah was a man who walked... There was obviously some intimacy between him and God already. There was some sort of relationship. But here God says, I will establish my covenant. This is the formalising of a relationship. This is, as it were, turning something that was previously understood as to what was happening into a writing, a contract, so we know exactly what's involved. He's establishing, which is the idea of sort of rejuvenating... Uh, already a, a prior covenant or relationship and it's his covenant and the result is I will establish my covenant you will enter the ark that is the place of safety people have often looked at this story of, of Noah's ark and seen in the ark a picture of Jesus Christ the place of safety 
You're either in or you're not. Looking at the ark and admiring the architecture does you no good at all. You've got to enter the ark. So it is with Jesus. We need to trust him, not just admire him. But here God will establish his covenant and the relationship begins. I'd encourage you to particularly have a look at chapter 6 and chapter 9. They're quite short chapters, but they're different different but similar. In chapter 6, actually this is a thing you can, I I didn't know this until I read it in the book. Um, All the you, I will establish my covenant with you is in the singular. It's with Noah. In chapter 9, where about seven times in a few verses, covenant, 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 um, it's the you is plural. God is forming a covenant with a bunch of people and a bunch of animals. In chapter 8, Abraham gets out of the ark and without being told or instructed, he goes on to build something. He's already built the ark, but that was under orders. In chapter 8, he builds an altar and offers sacrifice, a way of saying thanks to God for having saved his life and spared his family and also for bringing them into a new, a new day. God speaks to Noah in the same way he speaks to Adam. Go forth and multiply. Fill the earth. It is a whole new beginning. But then in chapter 8, we have this um, quite uh, extraordinary thing. Look at it. There's the verse. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord, smelling the pleasing aroma, and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures. You get this thumping through this thing of never again. Because what God had done is he created this world and this whole web of life and the whole thing was beginning to stink because of humans. And so the whole web of life had been judged and cleansed, wiped away to start again. But in chapter 8 he says it's in his heart God makes a decision in chapter 8 that he won't ever do what he did there again, to wipe out via the flood the whole of life, except for those few floating in the ark, the place of safety. But then in chapter 9, he does something quite wonderful. He makes a covenant. So what he says then is, in chapter 9, what was in God's heart, he was going to not do it, He then wants the people to know. God said to Noah and to his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. See, that's that's us, by the way, because I think we we all go back to this, uh, the eight on the ark. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living, this is odd, isn't it? And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth, I establish my covenant with you never again. So what was in the heart of God? He'd made a decision in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he speaks it to the humans so we can know what was in his heart. God is not an under-communicator. You have had friendships like that with people where you never quite know what's going on and you only discover afterwards what they're upset about and you think, gosh, it would have been helpful to know that before. But God, there may be things God hasn't told you that you're mildly curious about, but all the things that we need to know to live well and to live joyfully and to live angst-free, he makes known to us. He makes known the future. This is the God of the covenant 
We're going to look next week at the crucial covenant of Abraham. But this, this one with Noah and us and the animals is kind of more basic. It's, it's saying there's, there is a stability about life on earth that is not an accident. The laws of nature, as Isaac Newton discovered them as he knew, were just the way that God acts. So there's a stability and a certainty about what's going to happen. And God does not want people to live with unnecessary anxiety. So he tells us what he will do and he tells us what he won't do. A lot of our anxieties, friends, is because we don't bother to listen. Or if we hear, we just think, nah, I'm not sure if he's going to do that. Maybe God's as much of a flake out as you are. That sometimes you keep your promise, but if it becomes inconvenient, but God will keep his promise. In fact, God is still keeping the promise that he made to Abraham that we'll look at next week. God is still keeping the promise he made at the time of Noah. God is the God of covenant. He bothers to make promises and he will always keep them. He is not a liar. He is not forgetful of his promise. And when we come to that wonderful phrase, the Lord remembered, that's the first time it's used, it'll pop up often in the Bible, where it says, the Lord remembered Noah. I imagine Noah might have wondered if he'd been forgotten. He'd been in the ark at that stage for about six months. It would have been toxic for all sorts of reasons. But God did not forget him. Although, interestingly, it says God, did, God remembered Noah and the animals. The interesting thing in this is, God's concern for the animals as well as for humans. Anyhow, he is the God who makes and keeps his promises. Secondly, what are the people like that God makes promises with? What, how good do you have to be before God will come and give you a promise and make his plans known to you? Well, in chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, are some of the saddest verses in the Bible. When God looked at the beautiful world he'd made, and the beautiful people and the animal, he, he, was, he was sad. It grieved him. Now, God is going to act as the holy judge, as he should, and deal with sin and evil and dishonesty and violence. But he doesn't do it easily. He's a broken-hearted judge. A bit like Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem, knowing exactly what they're going to do to him, knowing that they're going to whip him and crucify him, and yet he weeps for them because he knows that this will bring further judgment upon them. This is the way God does judgment, not joyfully, not with a snap of bad temper. As the Bible says, he is slow to become angry. The Bible is very clear, God does become angry, but he is slow to become angry. But there are things that rightly break his heart and anger him. Maybe it's a little bit like in you know, a President Truman, who was the President of the United States at the end of World War II. And they made that dreadful decision to drop those terrifying bombs on those two cities. And Truman was asked afterwards, and he, Truman does seem to have been a really decent human being in so many ways. He was asked if he regretted it, and he said, no. I think it was the right thing to do. Terribly sad to be involved in it. But it was, maybe you can argue that, those people who like to argue politically. Some of us know it was wrong because America did it. Uh, some of us take the other side and say, no, it was probably right because he was on our side. But Truman regretted the sorrow and the pain and yet saw that dire, sometimes dire things are needed. Sometimes doctors amputate limbs and remove organs. There are times when action has to be taken. But God knows that the people that he's acting with and dealing with are, even at our best, are not too good. 
So if you look at chapter 8, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He wasn't ordered to. He just instinctively wanted to worship God and to say thank you and to, to seek guidance. Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelt the pleasing aroma. I, it's probably written like this because in the Gilgamesh story, the, the picture is all, there's all these silly gods who are smelling because they, they need the food from the humans. When the humans begin to do some stuff, the, the one who escaped. Um, they're pictured like flies. In fact, Gilgamesh actually pictures them quite deliberately like flies around a barbecue. It, it's quite kind of pathetic, but the Bible still uses that picture of God Thing, oh, that, that's a nice smell. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the, the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. It's interesting. Here's Noah and presumably his family doing a good thing. They're worshipping God, they're making a sacrifice. And God finds it pleasing. But at that very moment, he also tells us something true about the worshipper, you and me, that there is something deeply evil about all of us. Now, that's very unpopular, but it's one of the few things you can prove, I would have thought, scientifically. All of us do harm to people we love. All of us do nice things, often for selfish reasons. There is an evil in my heart as there is in your heart. And one of the reasons why Marxism never works and ends up having to slaughter so many of its own people, lots of empires slaughter neighbouring nations, the mark of communist governments is that they slaughter their own people. Right? Like Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, what a monster. Um, so many of the Russian rulers. The problem, the reason why it can't work, in fact, the fact it's so nice, is it's got a pathetic view of humans. It thinks that we're basically good and we get damaged by society. No, 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 no. From the very beginning, the Bible's been more realistic. It says, no, no, there's something deeply wrong with all of us, even with Noah. God has taken the best of the best of the best. As far as we know, he was the only person worshipping God at that stage. Don't ever worry about being a minority. Truth is normally in the minority. Right? So don't, you know, that, that's fine. But Noah was the only bloke, as far as we know, who was walking with God, who was blameless and righteous. And yet even Noah, as he does his act of worship, God says, there's evil there deep in the heart. We didn't go the whole way with the story, not because we wanted the censor, but because we're trying to focus on the covenants. But what happens after that is dreadful. Noah gets growing. He grows some grapes. He gets not just a little bit tipsy. He gets roaringly drunk and then ends up falling asleep naked in the family home. One of his sons then mocks him and ridicules him in the way that he behaves that causes ongoing damage for generations. Even someone as wonderful as Noah is a screw-up. He wasn't saved because he was pure and virtuous. It was grace all the way through, even though he was the best of the best of the best. See, what went into the ark with Noah? Well, you can get a list, can't you? His wife... Mrs. Noah, his sons and their wives, truckloads of animals. That fortunately, the Bible says they came looking for him. He didn't have to go looking for the budgerigars, right? This, this is a God thing. This isn't just some natural wonder, right? This is a God thing. So he, the animals come. 
which makes it certainly much easier to get them. Um, so the animals go with him. Food goes into the ark. And the animals produce stuff while they're there. They're very productive. And I hope they had a large couple of shovels and some windows that they could move things along with. But something else went in. What else went into the ark with Noah, his wife, his sons, their daughters, the animals, the food? Well, you can see what goes in with them. Sin goes in with them. Noah is a sinful man. His wife is a sinful woman. His sons are sinful. And God knows that. So at the very point when he's saying, I'm never going to do this again, he says, part of the reason he's saying he's making that promise, that commitment, is because he knows how wicked the best of us are. That's why we have to have all sorts of rules and government and checks and balances, is because we know, left to ourselves. Well, there's a lovely comment that um, Narcotics Anonymous have got, which is, an addict alone is in bad company. And I think that's probably true for most of us. So who does God make the covenant with? He makes it with people who are sinful. And what he's saying here is it just doesn't work to wipe out the whole system, the whole system of life, because man's going to keep screwing it up. And God decides in his heart, I'm not doing this again. And he lets us know he makes a covenant. So we don't need to be worried. At what point do you think, gosh, if God... Did that then? What would what would he be thinking in maybe 1944 if he was looking at Europe? Who knows? All sorts of things. But we need never worry that God will again flood the earth to have a fresh start. The only fresh start will come when Jesus returns in glory on a day just like today, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, the last thing, friends, is this: the interesting thing, and I hope you noticed it as, as you heard the reading is the part that animals play in this. Christianity is sometimes sort of critiqued for being um, overly obsessed with humans, um, as if, it, as if I, mean, I regularly read things saying, you know, this sort of anthropocentric view that Christians have, this massive egotism that Christians have that we think that we're the most important game in town. Well, I think the Bible does think we're absolutely central on the earth. But it also thinks that animals, birds, fishes, etc., also have an important part to play in God's view of the world that he has. And therefore, the, last, the very last verse simply says this, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. What we get here is a very clear indication that the creator values his creation. Although human sin has entered and has wrecked all sorts of things, God is not giving up on his creation. His great work of art may be wrecked, well, not quite wrecked, damaged, terribly damaged, but he continues to, well, actually, I was going to say love. That would be to concede too much. My wife and I had a friendly argument yesterday. Um, She was saying that God loves whales and um, birds and all that stuff. And I said, well, I don't know if I'd use the word love. Um, I sometimes, if I'm sending a message, I've got two words for love, L-U-V and L-O-V-E. Because, you know, you want to say, oh, I love that, but you don't mean love, love. So I I use a different, I spell it differently. So if I say to you, if I write to you and say, I love you, check if it's a U or an O. (laughs) Because if it's a U, it might just be like my view of ice cream or something like that. 
But I was saying, no, I'm not sure if I'd want to use the word love for the way God thinks about them. I think he likes them. Um, he sees them and they're good. But then I was listening to some Timothy Keller and he seems to think God loves them. So maybe my wife's right on that. I'm not telling her that. But, um, but what you see is this, this God makes a covenant with the animals. Now, I don't think the animals suddenly, I don't know what they know. Who knows what, know, what they know? But what the Bible is saying is God is not just interested in humans. He wants the stability for the animal kingdom and for the fish kingdom. All of this is his. And he wants it. That's, this is where that story ends. The sign of the covenant is between all life because all of life belongs to God, which is why Christians, I think, have got a very high reason to be concerned about the environment. Most of the arguments given for why we should be concerned about the environment are either sentimentalism or self-centred. We better care for the environment or we'll all be dead in two years or something. Or we better care for the environment because the little green frog in somewhere is really cute. And it's sort of sentimentalism or just self-centeredness. What the Bible says is, no, no, no. You care about the environment, both the trees and the animals, because they belong to someone and he cares about them. That's why we're to look after animals. That's why the Bible says the righteous man is kind to his animals, because he knows that they belong to God. And that's, what's, that, that's what this passage is showing us. God is, yes, humans are central in the drama on earth, but the animals and every, all life matters to God. So if you find great joy in animals and trees, and etc., etc., that's a godly thing. We were made to enjoy those things. And if you don't enjoy them, maybe you should go for a bushwalk anyhow and, just, and recover something which is deep in the humour. We are made as part of life, central, but still part of everything. So it's in these chapters where man is told he's free to eat animals. In the Garden of Eden, as Andrew did our tent, we were vegetarians. In chapter 9, humans are given permission to eat the animals. It's the very same chapter where you get the fact that God cares for them. So some people think God loves the animals so you shouldn't eat them. That's simply just not what the Bible says. It says, yes, God does love and care for the animals. So when you kill them to eat them, kill them and eat them or kill them quickly. There are some ways that cultures kill animals that they bleed them, etc., where they die slowly. And it's unpleasant. It was on the ABC a couple of years ago. It caused a riot because they've got to get the blood out of them while they're still alive. No, 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 we should kill them quickly. So when I go fishing... I was a vegetarian for a month, and um, I had to go to a conference just to see how the other half live. It wasn't that. Being a vegan, I'm not even going to crack at that. That's ridiculous. But um, God bless you if you want to live with the challenge. But, um, but there was this month when I was uh, a vegetarian, and uh, I went down to a conference down by the water, and I'd normally take a fishing rod, that's the best thing to do on a clergy conference, and go fishing near the, near the ocean. And... Uh, but I didn't go fishing because I'm a ve- I don't catch fish for the fun of catching fish. You might. I'm not judging you. But I, I don't think you put a hook through the mouth of some animal just for the fun of catching it. If I'm not, eat, if I'm not a chance of eating it, I'm not catching it. I think, that's, I think that's fair enough. And when I catch a fish, they are beautiful, magnificent. And I'm aware when I kill them, I'm killing something. And I'm thankful to God that he has allowed that. We know that Jesus ate lamb quite a few times in his life. So it's interesting because you've got this, God cares for living things, but we are allowed to eat them. 
but we're still to treat them kindly and respectfully, and he makes a covenant with them. And this brings us, just as an example, I think, um, the RSPCA is one of a huge number of organisations that our culture thinks just happened because of the evolution of Western consciousness, which is utter rubbish. The RSPCA was started by 22 men, 21 of them were overt Christians, one of them was Jewish. Three of them were clergymen. It was led by a guy called William Wilberforce, who was the man who fought the great fight to get rid of slavery. That the RSPCA is an overtly Christian organisation. Now, others come and take it over. That's what Christians do. We start things that no one else would think of starting, and then others come and get a living out of it, and we convince people it's right. In the minutes from one of the first meetings, they say this, the proceedings of this society are entirely based on the Christian faith and on Christian principles. Because they understood that animals, most, a lot of cultures have sports that involve animal versus animal violence. And even the Puritans, who are amongst the most hated group in English history, when they had their brief period of running England, they banned a whole lot of animal on animal violence. Bears fighting dogs and things like that. People didn't like the Puritans said They didn't do it because they cared for the animals. They just knew the people enjoyed it, so they banned it, which is a little, a little cynical. Right? But the RSPCA started because of the concern of this, that sort of concern. God made the animals. They are his. We enjoy them. We sometimes use them for food. And we care for them. Even the ones that we're preparing to be eaten, we look after them. We give them as good a life as we can. God makes the promise with Noah, his descendants, which is us, and the animals, giving them a stability in life. There are many areas like that. But just to remember the RSPCA and groups like that grow out of the... People might say, oh, the Bible doesn't care about anything but, anim but humans. Nonsense. In fact, if you look at the end of Jonah, the last few words in Jonah about God's mercy on the people in Nineveh and all their animals. God is an animal lover. There is flipping idea. When we enjoy our dog, Ricky, we often are thankful to God. Now I know humans played a part in the, in the, in the breeding, etc. That's what our job is. We make gardens and we do all sorts of things. That's what humans work with what God gives. But God is the covenant-making God and he's a God who loves his creation, what he's made. Well, friends, as we come to an end, what we're going to see over the next few months is this, in this sort of mysterious statement where it says this in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God in him, that's Jesus, are yes, and in him, amen, which means so be it, to the glory of God in us. What we're going to find is that the promises in Noah, the promises through Abraham, the promises at Mount Sinai, the promises through King David all come true and come to their fulfilment in Jesus. It, this is one of the extraordinary things as you read the Bible, that you read this stuff back here and think, oh, blimey, Charlie. And God is keeping his promise all the way through until his son comes. He would rather die than break his promise. God is a God who keeps his word, no matter what it costs him. And this context that the apostle has this statement is where he is saying, I am not a person who says yes and then means no. Because if you're a Christian person, if you, if you are... Uh, a servant of, a truster in the covenant-keeping God, you realise that making and keeping promises really matter. My old man was not a Christian until some years uh, after the story. I'm going to tell you about him. But he was from a different culture that was deeply influenced by Christian values. He, he ran a chemist shop 
And it was really interesting with him because his word was his bond, even before he met Jesus. And I remember he would, if he said to a person, I will do everything possible to get you the medicine by the afternoon, and he had a strong sense as a chemist that that was his job, the way it would work would be he would ring up, if he, if he didn't have it, and Drug House Australia didn't get it to him in that day's delivery, he would ring up two or three other chemists in, in the area, and I would get on my little bike and go and pick up the drugs from that chemist shop, bring them back here, and then deliver them wherever. If that didn't work, Drug House Australia had a, I'm going like, because it was a huge hill on the way up from Rose Bay up to Bondi Junction, they had a, a small warehouse there, and the old man would send me sometimes to ride up to get it. It would be about, it was a massive hill. Those were the days. And, um, and, I'd get, and if, if they didn't have it, my mother would sometimes be rung and she would jump in the, in the Ford and drive all the way to Redfern where the biggest warehouse was. Why does he do that? He understands if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Where do we get that pig-headedness in our culture? You get it from the God of the covenant. And one of the areas where we change as Christians when we become Christians is, which we don't even think about, it's not that we stop lying, that's obvious. But we just realise when we make a promise, we make a promise. We keep our word even to our own hurt. That's what God does. His son will die so that he can bless the people that he promises to bless. And we celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. In baptisms, uh, you may have noticed people get asked this question, the parents get asked this question, are you yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, that makes, that's an obvious question. Um, a member of his church does anyone know what the third question is sincerely believing the promises of God what an act of utter brilliance by the people who wrote that service a few hundred years ago because we have a God who makes promises so the marks of his children is that we're the people who believe his promise and you might like to discuss with friends after church or in your Bible study group what's your favourite promise from God what of, the, what of the hundreds of promises he gives is your favourite? Uh, and if, if you don't have a favourite, start looking as you read the Bible this week. There'll be promises from God. So we follow a covenant-making God. He enters relationship with sinners and he loves his creation. Right? So we should live in his creation, being people who keep our word, people who don't need to be anxious about so much because he gives us his promises. We know where we're going. If you're following Jesus, you are on the right side of history, to use that stupid phrase that people use in ethical arguments. You are on the right side of history because it's all heading to Jesus. And then up until that time, we trust him, we relax, and we also keep our word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the God who makes promises. Um, Thank you that you always keep your promise. Forgive us for those times when we treat you as if you're a liar or we've been so silly as to not even find out what you do promise. And we do pray, Father, in a small way that even as we rely on you, we would become men and women of our word. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.